Good morning. Uh, if you would, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Um, in the Gospels, Jesus, and, and it's not just in the Gospels, uh, it also continues throughout the New Testament, there is a comparison or a link between uh, the church and the people of God and our, our individual families. Uh, Jesus says that the, his true family are those who do the will of God. And, and throughout the letters of Paul, you can see familial language being used to describe uh, his brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, talk about the church, you talk about each other as, as family. And I think that's a fitting uh, description for a lot of reasons. Uh, but one of those is that if you were to ask uh, 50 different people um, about their experiences with church, you would probably get a wide range of responses about that. Some people have experienced so much good and comfort from the church, and some people have had their deepest and most meaningful and impactful relationships in the church, and they couldn't imagine going through life without the church. I've, I've talked to people who've been in the hospital. I've talked to people who are facing death, and consistently I've heard people talk about how meaningful it has been in their life to have the church as a part of their life, and, and how they, they just they couldn't imagine going through what they've been through if they didn't have the church and people who loved them. At the same time, I know of a lot of people who uh, have very little to do with the church, and if you ask them their experiences about it, uh, they have very negative experiences. Uh, they have suffered e either abuse, or they have uh, felt neglected, or they have uh, experienced uh, difficulties, and it just seemed like they didn't quite fit in, and, 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 and they have struggled with their church, and their, their relationship has been one of tension and conflict. There are people who... Uh, feel loss when they think about the church. Not that they don't love the church, they do love the church, but maybe uh, the church that they used to be a part of was so vibrant and growing, but now it's, it feels harder when they look at things. It doesn't feel like uh, things are the way they should be, or they feel like some of the Christians who they've loved have gone from this world. And, and so when you ask people about the church, you'll get a bunch of different kinds of responses, some great and encouraging, some more uh, difficult, some more uh, tragic. And and the same thing is going to be true when you talk to people about their families. Uh, when you ask people about their family life, you'll get some people who they have just wonderful, deep, and committed relationships with their family. And, and I, I don't think there are many blessings in this life greater than having uh, a wonderful, loving family who supports you and loves you, who you can always rely on, who you can always talk to. As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons I very much appreciate days like today, like Mother's Day, uh, where we spend some time giving thanks and, and recognition and honor to those mothers who have done such a fantastic job loving their families and being uh, what God has called them to be. I, when I think of my life, I have been surrounded by good mothers. I have a very good mother. Uh, if she's listening to this, I love you, Mom, you're, you're a wonderful lady. Uh, but I, I have a very good, faithful, um, Christian example in a mother. And then my wife, Lauren, is a tremendous mother. She blows me away every day with the level of love and care and generosity and selflessness that she demonstrates day after day after day. It's, it's an example to me. It's an encouragement to me. And I'm very, very thankful for her. And I bet uh, many people here could go on and on about some of the very great relationships that they have with their mothers. But I also know that days like this aren't always easy for everyone. 
because there are also people here who maybe their life growing up or their family wasn't always there for them. Maybe they didn't have wonderful memories of their home. Maybe there is some trauma or some tragedy associated with their family. Maybe there are some who have had wonderful relationships with their mom. And not through evil, but through uh, grief or loss. Now when they reflect on their relationships with their mother, it, it's, it's, it's joy mixed with sorrow. You have the happy memories, but then you also have the grief of, of loss. And what I want us to do today is to be able to honor all the mothers who are here and express our appreciation and, and love uh, for what you have done and for what you continue to do and for the impact you have on our world, on our society, on our church. When it comes to church growth strategies, good moms are probably at the top of the list. Uh, that's, that's a really, really important uh, ministry and service in the kingdom. But I also want us to be able to be a source of comfort and of healing uh, to anyone who uh, maybe today doesn't always fill you with joy, or maybe there are some more painful memories. So I want to begin uh, this lesson with a prayer, and then we will dive into uh, to the lesson this, this morning. Our Holy Father, uh, God, we love you. We thank you so much for all that you do for us. And today, specifically, we want to thank you for uh, family. Thank you for mothers. Thank you for those who have sacrificed so much and have been such a good example of love, of generosity, of kindness, and of goodness. Uh, we thank you for faithful Christian mothers who have taught the faith to their children, who have been a consistent example. Uh, we thank you for those mothers who have taken care of and nurtured others and uh, have been moms not only to their own children, Father, but also to other children. We know that the church is full of mothers. Uh, we know that the church is full of people who um, look out not only for their own kids, but also for the children of others and who are a good example of godliness. And we pray, Father, that the church is full of mothers. Uh, we pray that the church is full of family so that we can look around this building and see brothers and sisters, but also mothers and fathers who we know love us and care for us. That's such an important ministry, Father. We also pray that you be um, with those who experience a heartache today or who have some uh, difficult uh, feelings associated with, with Mother's Day. We pray that you would be a source of peace and comfort to them. Uh, we pray that you would uh, give them uh, peace at this time, good Father, and we pray that we as a church can be a source of, of uh, healing and of, of peace as well. We love you. We thank you for all that you do, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Happy Mother's Day. Um, so as I said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, and we're going to be looking at the church, and we're going to see kind of like how I started off saying, if you ask people their experiences with the church, you'll get a wide range of answers. Well, you're going to see a wide range of church experiences just in this little passage that we're going to be reading. You're going to see some examples of committed love and of care that, that Christians have for one another. You're also going to see some division in the church. Uh, that's not something that is, uh, is rare. That's something that most people who have ever been acquainted with the church, even Paul in the very earliest days, have been acquainted with and familiar with. Division is something that, uh, that often happens. You're going to see some hard feelings towards other people. People. You'll even see some slander uh, thrown around, but then you're, you're going to see some incredible demonstrations of unity. Uh, I love this passage because really it is such a good example in my thinking of what Paul means when he talks about becoming all things to all people that by all means he might save some. 
Paul is a phenomenal evangelist. He's also a, a tremendous example of how you prioritize unity in the church. You can tell this guy loves the church, and he genuinely wants what's best for the church. Church isn't just something he does on Sunday when there's nothing better to do. Church isn't just something that's a small part of his life along with his career and other things. Church isn't just something that, like, he fits into the background of his life. The church is what his life is about. Uh, the church are the people of God, and if you, want to, if you want to commit yourself to Jesus, you commit yourself to his family, and you love his family, and you grow together with his family. And that's what Paul does, and he does it masterfully well. As an evangelist, you see these examples of him going to a synagogue in Pisidia Antioch and teaching them about Jesus and doing so from the Jewish scriptures, because he's in a synagogue, and he's talking to Jews, and, and he's going to become all things to all people. So to Jews, he's going to teach them like a Jew. But then you'll also see when he goes to Athens in Acts chapter 17, he's going to sound like a Greek philosopher, and he's going to quote Greek poets, and he's going to use even their own idols as illustrations of what he can teach them about God, and he'll use their temples in order to teach them about the way that God created the whole world, and how, you know, if if God is the creator of the whole world, then we don't need to create a house for him. He's already created the house for us. And, and he's able to, to use the society and the culture around him to teach people about Jesus. And he does that as well as anyone I've ever seen in my whole life. What we're going to come across here in Acts chapter 21 is an example of Paul, not so much in an effort to evangelize, but in an effort to relate to his church family and to unite people who are divided, we're going to see him do some acts that are, are pretty incredible, I think, uh, considering some of the things that Paul might write in some of his letters. He does something that I don't think he thinks is necessary for him to do. Uh, he does something that, uh, that I think he could argue uh, persuasively that he does not have to do. But instead, what he's going to do is he's going to prioritize unity above knowledge. He's going to prioritize love for other people above what he thinks his rights are, and uh, we're going to see a pretty incredible demonstration of that, and it's not going to work out well for him. And that's another point. Um, he's going to prioritize unity, and he's going to act in a way that, uh, that demonstrates love towards other people, and he's going to suffer for doing so which just shows us how much unity matters to him. It's like he's not only going to do it if it's going to work out well for him. He'll do it no matter the consequences, and he'll do it whatever the costs, because unity matters more even than his own life. And so uh, let's look at Acts chapter 21. Actually, for a few pictures of the beauty of the church, look a couple verses right before uh, chapter 21. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 36 through 38. This is Paul with a group of elders from the church at Ephesus, and he is leaving uh, Ephesus, and he had been with them for, for about three years, and he's uh, embarking on other journeys now, and he ends up meeting together with them. He has some really kind words to say. Then verse 36 says, When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they were accompanying him to the ship. So Paul's getting on a ship to leave, and the elders and him, they're like crying and hugging and kissing because they are family, 
and they love each other. And he's about to leave and go off to other places, and they're so heartbroken that they're not going to see his face again. And so this is like this touching farewell goodbye. Uh, you then have a couple of verses describing his travels. He arrives in Tyre, and uh, look at chapter 21, verse 4. We're going to see something also that I think is interesting pop up right here. It says, after looking up the disciples, and uh, he stayed with them for seven days, or we stayed with them for seven days. So he gets to Tyre, and he's like, i got to find some Christians here. So he finds them, and he stays with them for a week. That's going to show you hospitality. That's going to show you kind of this Christian connection. That's one of the things, by the way, that I love about the church. When you go and you uh, travel to a different place in the country or a different part of the world, and you can find the church there. You can find people who, even though you don't know them and you've never seen their face before, you know you have family. That's a wonderful feeling. There was a one time Lauren and I were uh, taking a vacation. Uh, this was maybe eight or nine years ago. Um, and uh, we were going to take a cruise and we were leaving out of Charleston, South Carolina. And we had never been to Charleston before and didn't really know anyone there. But uh, we went there, and it was a Sunday that the, the cruise was leaving, I think, or maybe it was a Monday. Either way, we were there for Sunday, and we worshiped with the church there in Charleston. And while we were there, we met some people, and we were talking. It was a friendly church, and they said, hey, don't, uh, don't drive your car down and park it there by the cruise thing where they charge you like $15 a day, and then you can come back and you have to pay you know, this bill. Just park it at our house, and uh, we'll keep your car for you know, a week or however long it was. And uh, it, it was like that actually was really helpful. They let us stay at their house. They uh, gave us a ride to, the, uh, to, to go uh, take the cruise. And it was like, I didn't even know these people, but they were being kind to me and I was trusting them and it worked out. They didn't like break into my car or anything. Uh, but, but that's kind of the point. Uh, it's wonderful to go somewhere and to be able to find uh, people who you can connect with. Paul arrives at this city. He says, I went to the new city. I need a place to stay. He finds some disciples, and they keep him for seven days. Um, so while he's there in verse 4, not only do they keep him for seven days, it says, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now that's kind of, that's an important foreshadowing detail. Uh, you have some prophets there at the church, and they're aware of Paul's travel plans. He's heading to Jerusalem, and they, through the Spirit, are telling him, don't go, because the Spirit is revealing to them when he goes to Jerusalem, it's not going to work out well for him. I told you earlier, it doesn't work out well for him. Uh, he's going to get in a bad situation when he gets there. And God is actually warning this church. And this church loves Paul. And so they're telling him, don't do it. Don't go. Don't go. And uh, Paul is going to, you know, Paul doesn't always take people's advice. Uh, and he's going to anyway. Uh, he has determined that this is an essential part of his ministry. But even there, you see the church wanting to protect him and care for him. They go to a beach. Uh, look at verse 5. It says, When our days there were ended, uh, we left and started on our journey. And while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city, after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Uh, so then, like, all their families come together, wives and children and all the men of the church, and, like, they follow Paul out to the beach, and they all kneel down and they pray together. Again, that's a beautiful picture of church unity. They, they housed him for seven days. They've warned him about his well-being, and now they're all praying together on a beach. It's like, this type of stuff pops up all the time, and it's easy to take these types of things for granted. But the unity of the church is a beautiful thing, especially when you consider the fact that many of these Christians, and this is going to be central to the 
the complications that arise. There are people who, without the message of Jesus, probably would have nothing to do with each other. It's like you have Jews and Gentiles who are gathering together, and the reason that they're able to join together in unity and in worship is because there's something bigger than themselves that is uniting them. There's something bigger than just their culture or where they're from. They have the global message of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ bringing them together in the saving message of the love of God that is uniting them. And you see that like in place after place that Paul goes. Um, not only is unity a really cool thing, but even just think about, think about this church. Think about how many people there are here who you just lifted up your voice and sang with. You just remembered the Lord as you took the Lord's Supper. You've prayed together with here. Uh, those are not small things, and those are not nothing. Those things matter when you gather together. Think about how many of the people here, if it weren't for this church, and if it weren't for the message of Jesus, you would probably never see or never do any, you never sing with these people, you know, what would you get together and sing with these people? Like, there are so many different interests and backgrounds, there's different socioeconomic status, there's different uh, careers, like, there are so many reasons that we could be divided and never have anything to do with one another, but here we are, we're all together, we're all sitting in the same room, we're all we're opening our Bibles and reading the same texts, and we're talking about these things, and we just had Bible classes, and we just had the Lord's Supper, and we remember Jesus, and we've prayed together, and we've sang together. That unites us. That unites us in ways that would not happen if it weren't for Jesus. And here it is 2,000 years later, Jesus is still uniting people. And that's a powerful image, and that's a powerful message and testimony of the goodness of the church and what the church can do. And so Paul is experiencing that in city after city that he visits. In fact, he continues traveling. He gets to Caesarea in chapter 21 of verse 8. It says, And on the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, uh, we stayed with him. So uh, when it says he was one of the seven, that's a wink back to uh, earlier when uh, it was Acts chapter 6, when there was uh, the conflict between the widows. Some of them weren't being fed. The Hellenistic Greek-speaking widows weren't being fed, but the native Jewish widows, they were being given meals. So one of the things that the church took upon themselves to do was to feed the widows. And uh, you see that some of those human divisions started to enter into the church, where it was like based on the language they speak or where they're from. These ones aren't getting it, but these ones are. And so so the church says, all right, we can't have any of that nonsense. And so they set seven guys over this feeding of the widows project to make sure that they all get food and that there's no prejudice in there. Well, that's what, that's what this guy spent his time doing in Jerusalem. Now he's in Caesarea and he has four daughters and they're all prophetesses. Um, if you remember, um, if you look at verse nine, that's where the prophetesses are mentioned. It says, and, uh, now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Uh, if you remember Acts chapter two, there's this promise of the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh. And you see mention of male and female being part of that, that God is pouring out his Spirit upon. And here we run into a man who has spent his life serving the church. He has uh, helped cause uh, like divides to, uh, to be eliminated. And now he's in Caesarea and he's doing good work with the church there. And his family is continuing to do good work with the church there. Verse 10 and it says, as they were staying there for some days, so he allows Paul to stay with him for a good long time, uh, a prophet named Agabus comes down, came down from Judea, and coming up to us, he took Paul's belt and bound it 
on his own feet and hands. So this, this prophet comes down, and he takes Paul's belt. Uh, and you're like, what are you doing? Uh, and then he wraps it around his own feet and around his own hands as like this demonstration of something. And prophets often did strange stuff like that. You just had to see what they were going to do and then listen to the message because there's usually a relationship between them. And after doing that in verse tw- uh, 11, it says, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so remember earlier when they were telling him, hey, the Spirit saying, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to be arrested there. Now another prophet comes down and through the Holy Spirit is saying, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested there. And so Paul has some decisions to make. Uh, What is he going to do? Is he going to continue his mission and ministry to try to unite churches by going to Jerusalem and and trying to help the churches there? Or is he going to keep doing a good ministry and just avoid that conflict? Well, here's what Paul says. Um, Look at verse 12. says, When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began uh, begging him not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying. I appreciate your love that you're, you know, showering upon me and your concern and your care, but I'm ready for this. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to serve the church there. And even if I die doing it for the name of Jesus, it's worth it. Paul is putting the unity of the church above even his own life. He's putting the mission of Christ above even his own life. And even like his missionary companions, along with the churches that he keeps seeing, whether it's the church at Ephesus or the church at Tyre or the church at Caesarea, they're all like crying with him and begging him. And Paul's still going to do it. And, uh, and so he does it. And the people in verse 14, And since he was not persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. Um, okay, may God be with you. We hope that God's will is able to happen through this. And what's amazing is God's will does happen through this. Um, so the Holy Spirit is letting them know the problems that are going to, to happen if he goes to Jerusalem. Um, but at the same time, God can use him wherever he is. Whether he continues on missionary journeys or whether he goes to Jerusalem, God's going to be able to use him in those scenarios. So he does go to Jerusalem. Spoiler, he gets arrested while he's there. And he spends the rest of the book of Acts as a prisoner going from trial to trial and before king to king, before he ends up a prisoner in Rome. But do you know what happens along the way? Two things. One is he fulfills what Jesus told him was going to happen when Jesus first uh, uh, appeared to him. And he said that you're going to suffer immeasurably, and you're going to appear before Jews and Gentiles and even kings as a witness of mine. So this is where Paul begins to appear before the kings and the different rulers of the lands on trial. Uh, He does so as a prisoner. So God is using him not necessarily as, as... simply an emissary to appear before a king with a message of Jesus, but as a prisoner, he's being used as an emissary of Jesus to appear before a king and present the message of Jesus. So Jesus is going to use this, but the other thing it's going to do is as Paul travels as a prisoner, he's going to repeatedly have opportunities to teach the gospel in settings that he would not otherwise have been able to. I believe we spend a lot of time 
perhaps worried about where exactly the Spirit wants us to be and whether it's a new job or whether it's a move or whether it's, you know, whatever it is in our life, trying to, to predict what it is that God's will for us is. And I'm of the opinion that wherever you find yourself is where God can use you right now. You shouldn't have to uh, think, well, if I get it wrong, then God can't use me anymore. I don't think that's true. I think God could have used Paul really regardless of what decision he ended up making. Uh, he goes to Jerusalem, and God certainly makes good use of that, and that's, that's the direction the end of the book of Acts goes. But I'm curious what would have happened otherwise. We don't know, but God can use you where you are. So if you're here, you were sent here. If you're somewhere else, you were sent there, and you are a, a, an ambassador of Christ wherever you find yourself. So live in that way. So here's what Paul does. He goes to Jerusalem, and he meets there with the elders. So he's been meeting with all of these churches. He finally gets to Jerusalem. This is the one that he's been warned about. Don't go there. And you know what happens when he arrives? Look at Acts chapter 21 and uh, verse 19. Or sorry, sorry, back up to verse 17. It says, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Okay, that's good news. You know, that's, that's what you were hoping would happen. Good things are happening. Verse 18, And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and the, all the elders were present. And after he greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So the church receives him gladly. He's meeting with the elders. He's there with James. And he's telling them about all the great things that God has done through him among the Gentiles. And everyone's super happy about it. Uh, verse 20, it says, and when they heard of it, they began to glorify God. So like the church of Jerusalem is thrilled with what Paul has done among the Gentiles. And they're glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. That's interesting. Um, so they believe in Jesus. And yet they're zealous for the law. And they are Christians. Um, one of the things that the church has sometimes throughout the last 2,000 years struggled with, I, and I, when I say sometimes, I mean pretty much always. I don't know if there's ever been complete clarity in anyone's mind uh, about how this all works out, is the Christian's relationship to the law. And whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, like they're trying to work all that stuff out in the New Testament. And I still think people are kind of trying to work all that stuff out. Uh, what exactly, like the the Old Testament or the, and the law of Moses and the prophets, they are part of our scriptures. And as such, we should read them and grow from them. Uh, there are times when the New Testament even like, uh, you know, teaches doctrine and teaches morality using these, these passages from the Old Testament. But at the same time, there are some things that it seems rather clear that... Uh, that you shouldn't be binding from the Old Testament on people. Like circumcision, Paul says that's a different gospel if you take that and you bind it on people. And so there's, there's conflict with exactly what parts of it are we reading? How do we read it? Do we read it just as like a nice storybook? Is there actually stuff that I'm supposed to do from the Old Testament? Uh, is there stuff that, and like in trying to work all that out, I'm not going to do it this morning, but I'm just going to let you know that there are a lot of different things, even in the New Testament, that people didn't quite agree on. In Acts 15, there's this big meeting about, okay, what about Gentiles? Do we make them be circumcised like Jews in order to be part of the covenant or no? 
And the Christians, are not, they don't agree on that. Uh, and so they have this meeting and they eventually come to a decision, okay, uh, Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. Uh, and they even use scripture for that and they use like God's will. And so they, they come up to, with that answer. When Paul writes the book of Galatians, it appears that there are some who are saying that Gentiles do need to be circumcised. And that's what he's super mad about, uh, that they are ignoring uh, the will of God on that issue. And they're binding on people something that God did not bind on them. So he says, don't do that. Um, and as a corollary to that, he sees that even Jews who, who would not bind circumcision on Gentiles, they're still struggling with the idea of full fellowship with an uncircumcised Gentile. So it's like, yeah, you can be part of the kingdom, you can be a Christian, great, but we're not going to eat at the same table. And Paul says, no, that's a different gospel too. You know, you're not straightforward with the gospel either. You need to share the same table. So Paul's all about unity. And so that's one side of the coin of law, Christianity, gospel, how all that works together. But the other side is, okay, what about Jews? Like, yeah, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised, but what about, what about Jews? Who, like, do they still have to? And uh, the church in Jerusalem, absolutely yes. They are emphatic. I mean, they're still zealous for the law. These are people who are still offering sacrifices. They still go to the temple. They still circumcise their children. They still eat kosher. Remember, Peter was still eating, eating uh, according to the food laws until Acts 10 when he was told to go to Cornelius. And uh, it, like, it took three divine visions from heaven for him to not eat, uh, eat anymore. All of this is confusing for the early church. Uh, and they're trying to figure out, okay, so what exactly are we supposed to be doing and what are we not supposed to be doing? Well, what they hear is that Paul is going out and saying, nobody has to obey the law. Law of Moses doesn't matter anymore. I don't think that's quite what Paul's saying. But that's kind of what they're taking it as him saying. And they're saying that's what Paul's message is for Jew and Gentile. And again, I think they are misunderstanding Paul's message. So they get together, verse 20, uh, verse 21, th those Christians who believe and are zealous for the law says they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. So they hear that Paul is telling people, don't listen to Moses anymore, forsake him, don't obey the law, don't listen to it, don't circumcise your children. That's not what Paul is saying to Jewish Christians. In fact, just earlier, uh, he had Timothy circumcised, like in the same, in the same book. Uh, Paul is not saying that it's a sin for Jews to circumcise their children or that Jews shouldn't do that. He's saying, don't you dare bind that on Gentiles, but he's not telling Jews to stop doing that. But that's what they've heard. And so verse 22, this is their solution. They said, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. And by the way, they're kind of furious. Uh, Therefore, do this that we tell you, exactly what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to these things which, you, uh, which they have been told about you, but that you yourself walk orderly keeping the law. They say, Paul, all right, go take some guys, fulfill a vow, offer some sacrifices in the temple, and then everyone will know that you are doing the right stuff and you are keeping the law too. So what is Paul going to say here? Um, is Paul going to say, well, there's more to it than that. You know, I can, is he going to try to nuance or teach? The, the amazing thing here 
I think James is trying to play kind of referee. James, the Lord's brother, this is Jesus' brother who's at this meeting. He has on the one hand all these Christians who are furious at Paul because they hear that Paul's not keeping the law. On the other hand, he has Paul who I think believes it is absolutely a sin to bind the law on Gentiles. Uh, when it comes to Jews keeping the law, I think he probably has a go ahead and do it, uh, but if you don't, I don't think Paul thinks it's a sin. Uh, but all of this is like James is trying to get these two groups to unite with one another, and so he has this idea for Paul to go offer sacrifice at the temple. And what Paul does is he becomes all things to all people that by all means he might win, son. Uh, Paul doesn't argue. He doesn't say no. In fact, uh, what Paul does is uh, verse uh, 20, verse 25, by the way, is about how this relates to the Gentiles. But then verse 26, it says, Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, he went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. And so Paul goes there and he does it. And he's doing this in a hope to unite the church. And what ends up happening is other Jews see him at the temple. And they also saw him with some Gentiles earlier. So they assume he brought Gentiles into the temple, which he didn't do. And then they have him beaten and arrested. And then he ends up on trial. Like, and then the, the Romans get involved and they take him. And he spends the rest of the book in, like, arrest by the, like, under arrest by the Romans because of this false allegation about him causing this big stir at the temple. But all of this is a way of saying, I think when you look at these passages, you can see a couple of things. Number one, you can see tremendous love that the church has for Paul. I think you can see it in James, that James loves Paul. You can see it in all these churches he visited on the way to Jerusalem. On the other hand, you can see how there are a thousand issues that you could dream up that sometimes are unclear, that sometimes can be difficult, there could be confusion about, there's room for discussion, and Christians can divide over those things. And you can see how Paul, aware of all of that, is willing to do whatever it takes to try to facilitate unity among those groups. So here are some of my uh, thoughts as we draw the lesson to a, a close. Number one, the love of the unity of the church is one of the greatest blessings of the church. And make sure you're a part of it and you're engaging in it and you're trying to experience it. Uh, that's something that you can do here with one another. When you gather and you do sing and worship with one another, also try to meet people. Try to talk to people. Share with people who otherwise you would share nothing with. Because that is something that unites us in Christ. And that's beautiful and valuable. Uh, Spend time with people unlike yourself, because that's a reminder of how diverse the, un the, the body of Christ is. Um, prioritize unity and love. Secondly, be patient with people who don't see things the same way you do. Um, not every issue is simple. Not every issue is, is obvious to everyone. There's going to be a lot of, of views on a lot of different things. And what James is trying to do is trying to figure out some way to, even people who view things differently, to have unity with one another in the body of Christ. Uh, there are times, you see it in Paul's letters about things sacrificed to idols and eating food like that and the law. And you see all these different things pop up where it's like, how is it that people who don't agree can still love each other and be Christians and unite with one another. This is one of Paul's attempts to do that. Uh, so number two is try to not be divisive with every issue that there's diversity on. 
Find ways to prioritize the unity and love of Christ over some of those confusing issues. And then finally, I would say, do what it takes for unity. Um, Paul was willing to go to a temple and sacrifice for the sake of unity with his Jewish brothers. What are you willing to do? Are you willing to show up and worship with one another? Are you willing to, uh, to overlook maybe some of the faults or failures of a brother or help encourage someone through those things? Are you willing to forgive someone who has wronged you in some way? Um, sometimes it takes personal sacrifice for unity to work. And Paul is certainly willing to make it. He knew going to Jerusalem what was going to happen. He, someone like took his belt and wrapped his arms. You know, he was well aware that it was going to cause problems for him. But he did it anyway. What sacrifices will you make for unity? Because unity matters. And I'll also say on Mother's Day, uh, unity matters in your family. Um, if, if you can, if there are uh, maybe things in your past or, or things that you're, you're suffering through uh, that are keeping what could be a beautiful relationship from happening, See what steps you can take towards reconciliation. I think reconciliation is a beautiful thing when it happens in churches and when it happens in family. So I want to encourage you to try to lean towards reconciliation and see what you can do in, in that regard. And if there's anyone here who wants to take advantage of the ultimate reconciliation uh, that God offers you through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, we pray that you would let that be known. You can either come forward or you can talk to one of our elders in the library in the back. But if you have a need, please let it be known while we stand and while we sing.